Welcome to the River of Suck podcast. This is episode two. My name is Andy Reiner and I'm your host. Our guest today is Nick Economou, who lives in Portland, Oregon and works for Intel. Hey, Andy. Hey, Nick. How's it going? Going great. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, man. It's so great to have you here. So we've known each other a long time. Yeah, definitely. Very long time. We met on the school ski trip. The freshman ski trip, yeah. To Killington? Yeah. Yes, to Killington, Vermont. Yeah, that would have been 2001-ish. 18 years ago? Yeah. Wow. 18 years ago, we went skiing. Damn, cheers cheers to that. I didn't realize. Ah. 18 years we have been friends. I remember Andy coming onto the bus and being like, like bragging about how he skied this crazy gnarly run, and then I was like, "Oh, I, I skied that too." <laughs> so then we we bonded over that, um, and then the next day we got to ski together, and it was it was awesome. <laughs> I was the one with the long hair and the beard. Yep. You had the short hair. Yep. And we have since traded places over time gradually. I yeah. think. Although we both have a beard. We do now both have beards. Ever since I was little, I was always really into skiing and, and being outside. And I've also been very uh, scientifically inclined. So my dad was a scientist. He got me, you know, into, into science at a young age. And then I just kind of took both of these two tracks and kind of kept going on them, doing as much skiing as I could, skiing the hardest, craziest stuff I could find, getting into backpacking and hiking. In high school, learning about chemistry, getting really into that, learning about biology, continuing that through college and graduate school, and then on to where I am now at, at Intel, working on, working on making computer chips using some of the, the chemistry and scientific knowledge I've learned. And then, of course, skiing and being outside as much as I can when I'm not doing that. So for me, chemistry was something that I didn't pay enough attention to. <laughs> I could have learned more at the time, but it wasn't what captured my interest. But we were at the same school. What about chemistry captured you, and when did that happen, and how? Oh, man. It kind of came in phases, but there was a certain point I realized in, in chemistry class where basically like everything you look at or touch or feel is, some, is related to atoms moving around in some way. And there's this whole set of underlying principles and rules that like governs how that happens. So like if I knock on this on this stool, like this stool is made out of wood, which is molecules of cellulose and lignin, which pack together really closely and give you this hard <laughs> surface. Um, and then it's finished with this, like this coating so that it repels water and makes it hydrophobic. Even within your body, there's all these amazing amounts of chemical processes happening all the time. Like your brain is constantly chewing up glucose so you can think and like make all your body parts move and all your organs do their thing. I was definitely also uh, very interested in biology for that reason too, just because your body is such an amazing chemical machine. Playground. Yeah, exactly. So what's the way in? Did you have a moment in class or outside of class or something that happened in your life that made you realize that what you were learning in class was relevant? Uh, I can't think of a specific moment, but I just I just remember increasingly, like as I went through the general chemistry class and learned about, you know, acids and bases, then I would go and like, you know, drink some orange juice and be like, oh, this is like this pH. And when I pour it in, <laughs> when I pour it in my body, like my body is like a well buffered system. So it cancels out the pH of this orange juice or spreads it around or, you know, um, so that's why I don't die from my blood getting too acidic. And I was like, that's really freaking cool that that just happens. And I don't even even think about it. Wow. So that's so interesting because I never thought of orange juice past. I'm told it has vitamin C and it's good for me. Also, I like the way it tastes. Yeah, so I think I think some of it is just different people's brains are latch on to different things about about a certain subject. And for me, chemistry was just that thing. It kind of meshed well with the way I already thought about the world, so I just kind of latched onto it. Once I was at that point, I was just hungry to learn more. Like once I got to college, like taking all the classes I could, getting into doing research was another really cool step on that track. Can you give us an example of one of the experiments that made you feel like you were on the right path? Yeah, so in my senior year of college, I started doing independent research. That was when I really felt like this was the right, the right path for me. 
We were studying these fluorescent polymer molecules. Fluorescent polymers. Mm -hmm. What are they? A polymer is just a plastic. I mean, a polymer can be a number of things, but generally when we're talking about them, we mean a plastic. And fluorescent means that it absorbs one wavelength of light and then emits light at another wavelength. So these polymers will absorb ultraviolet radiation and then emit visible radiation. Ah, okay. And what we, what we were able to do with this, with this polymer is by changing the liquid that we dissolve this polymer in, we could change the shape of the polymer. And then when you change the shape of the polymer, you change its kind of local environment, and then you can change the wavelength of light that it emits. Mm. For me, that was a really cool first step into science. This was one of the first times where I, I sort of had this idea, this scientific idea based on the knowledge that I already had, and then was able to design an experiment and test it, and then it behaved the way that I thought it would. And you couldn't find any other versions of this experiment that had ever been done? Other versions of it, yes, but on, on different molecules in different places. So you had your own angle? Yeah, exactly. If you were just trying to repeat someone else's experiment, then you would hope you would get the same results as them. Mm -hmm. But by making your own experiment, you're kind of charting new territory on uncharted waters. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd agree with that. Cool. And that made it more fun. That made it way more fun. I love that. Up to that point, I was just reading science out of a textbook. I was learning, learning the language, learning the skills, but not actually practicing science, if you will. Hmm. You do labs in the classroom, but it's this pre-designed experiment which ends a certain way. And as long as you measure things correctly, you're going to do it right. But then when you start doing independent research, you're the boss. You're actually doing science, and you're actually doing things that haven't been done before, and there's no textbook about what's going to happen. <laughs> um, and I thought that was, that was a very cool feeling, to feel like you're, you're on the frontier of scientific knowledge, making admittedly a very small, but a, but a contribution to what's understood. So I've brought you here today to talk about a concept, the river of suck. Yes. We're standing on one side of the river. Behind us is our comfort cave. On the other side are future versions of ourselves who can do the things that we wish we could do now, but can't yet do, but we can kind of see over there. And there we are in an alternate reality. Oh man, I can accomplish that goal that I wish I could do now. In between, we've got whitewater rapids, rocks, and everyone's favorite, the thought piranha. The <laughs> negative thoughts that appear in your head and just try to take your good vibes and your good energy and smash them to pieces of negativity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like if there was a devil on your shoulder whispering into your brain self-defeating behavior and thoughts. So that's the River of Suck, and we've been talking about it with a number of people who play fiddles. We've talked about it at Fiddle Hell in Massachusetts, Rustic Roots. It's always been about music. The more I swam <laughs> across the River of Suck, the more I realized that all of the lessons are not only about music, but if applied in a reasonable way, could make your whole life better and could make your interactions with other people fulfilling Maybe you could gain friends, have a better life, <laughs> accomplish your goals in life, which it turns out, even for musicians, maybe I want to get better at making really good curry. That takes time. What I'm wondering is, as a scientist, but also as a human, Nick, how does this concept fit in with your life and what you've been trying to do? How have you been swimming and what thought piranhas have you experienced? Oh man, that is a, that is a, that is a big question. So I'll try to give a big answer if I can. Sure. Um, the way I've heard thought piranhas described, I think, I think we run into a very similar thing in the sciences. The best example I can think of this was in, was in graduate school where I was starting to, to really 
take charge of my own research and write my own papers and I just kind of felt like I was out there on my own and there was again this these thought piranhas these negative thoughts like oh you don't know what you're talking about you're not a real scientist like you don't know anything yet <laughs> and I realized over time that one thing you need to do is in some sense just accept it the reason that I was feeling these things was because I didn't really know that much yet I was I was still new at it and these thought piranhas were just trying to remind me that I needed to, to work on this, to like get better Ooh. at it. Instead of trying to fight against them, I just kind of swam with them, if you will. It's like a little school of thought piranhas. What? You mean the piranhas <laughs> are on the swim team, too? <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. And they'll still bite you, like, on occasion, but they'll, like, start biting you less over time, maybe. But since it's imaginary, then the wounds are not going to run you off the road unless you allow them to. Right. But I think I think a big part of where negative thoughts come from is they're trying to make you better. They're trying to remind you constantly what you're not doing and what you can't do and maybe what you want to do. And instead of just getting discouraged by that, you need to just take it as kind of a challenge, being like, okay, this is scary and I don't feel comfortable doing this and I don't know what I'm doing. So I need to learn and I need to practice and I need to get so it's more comfortable. So are you saying that's a scientific evolutionary part of our brains that those thoughts appear in our heads so that yeah. we can progress so, to the next level? So I don't know if I don't think there's any good experiment you could do because we can't like go back in time and get a bunch of cavemen. But uh <laughs> I've heard it <laughs> I've heard it said that uh I've heard it said by someone that the reason we're kind of anxious and kind of have these negative thoughts is because all of the apes that were like really content and really happy and like didn't have those thoughts, they were selected against evolutionarily because they didn't want to be the best monkeys that they could. So they either didn't save up enough food for winter or didn't build like a really good spear to defend themselves with <laughs> or they didn't put in enough work to have like a, an awesome mating dance or mating ritual to like you know get a mate and pass on their genes mm -hmm. these sort of negative thoughts i think are, are kind of part of that is like you wanting to make sure that you're the best you can possibly be we've been kind of evolutionarily selected to be this type of human that's like a little bit anxious and has these negative thought piranhas floating around so that's perfectly normal yeah, I think so. I only know what's going on in my brain, but... Mm -hmm. Coming back to the river, you have to suck at something before you can be good at it. Mm -hmm. That's that's where getting our, our brains into the right location inside of our skulls can help with the uh, mistakes and expectations. So, John McGann invented the concept of the river of suck. Check out episode one for a tribute to John McGann and uh, Rashad's eloquent description about why he was so awesome. In order to reach the other side, we're going to need to find some way to either swim across or build a boat. Mm -hmm. And to use a big I word, incremental. Yeah. We're looking for incremental solutions to long-term goals. The River of Suck is much wider. Yeah, it's like the Mississippi River of Suck. It's, it's That's the, right. the biggest river. Yeah. <laughs> The Amazon River of Suck. Yeah. <laughs> Which is wide and full of piranhas, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. So I mean that's that's daunting. So so how do we how do we how do we use this analogy to to remember you're talking about using the, the thought piranhas to your advantage. So how does that translate in your world to, to making these small steps to get you to the next level? Yeah, so I think I think once you realize that the thought piranhas are like are kind of actually trying to help you, they're they're actually kind of a device to push you to be better. You can it takes a little bit of the sting out of out of their bite, if you will. Okay. You know you know it's helping you. And I'd say the the biggest thing is you just need to start. You need to start moving. And I think I think in Rashad's interview he said you, it doesn't even matter which which direction you're going. You just need to start moving and going in a direction. Mm -hmm. and, and I agree with that a lot. You need to just start moving. And then if you're closer to the other side, you're going the right way. And if you're further from the other side, you're going the wrong way. And you just need to move and make like constant little course corrections so that you, you keep heading towards the other bank, wherever that is. So in terms of a scientific experiment, though, wouldn't creating your data be mm -hmm. one of those small steps like you have a goal i want to try this experiment yep 
I'm going to put forth some thoughts. But each data point requires work. Right. And you can't just like, you can hope that something works without doing that, the, the hard work of kind of creating those data points through, through experiments and science. And I think that's why once in a while we get some big hoaxes. Some people come with some big claims. Mm-hmm. They wanted mm-hmm. to just jump over the river of suck. Yep. But yep. ultimately they're shown to be a fraud because they haven't done that hard work of like, what, how do we create data points how can we observe the world in a way that can be repeated, not just yeah, not just by hoping things get better? What can we really do to make a difference that's going to be a big change based on our hard work? And only through that hard work do you get rewarded with the results you want. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And I mean, and sometimes, like with a lot of experiments, what you're doing might just never work. Like, you might just be smashing your head against a wall trying to make something happen that can't happen. Because maybe you just don't understand the system well enough. Maybe this result you think you're going to get is just not the result at all because you don't really understand what's going on. Yeah. So you need to you need to not be trying to brute force it in the sciences all the time. There is a lot of brute force. There's a lot of just, you know, staying at the lab long hours, running experiments, looking at graphs, like plotting data. But... <laughs> You need to be running the right experiments to to work towards the right result. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I, I, I have <laughs> I have an idea here. So yeah. So there's two words I want to zoom in on, which is mistakes mm-hmm. and expectations. And I think these are really related to each other. Yeah. Because a lot of people expect one thing, and when the result is not what they expected, they call it a mistake. Mm. But I think sometimes mistakes can actually be the 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 thing that makes us grow or the yeah this or it was the solution that we didn't know we were looking for exactly so and I, if you uh if you look at the sciences there's a long history of like inventions and discoveries coming because they didn't follow the expected result there was some weird blip in the data some weird some weird thing that people thought was a mistake but it actually turned out they just had kind of the wrong model of the system to begin with. And then they had to go back and update their model based on these new findings. So it's kind of true in some sense that there there are no mistakes. It's just a mistake of what you thought was there. So the expectation was the mistake, right. not the actual result. Exactly. Right. So so a good example that I remembered was uh, was uh, the discovery of Teflon, actually, for, for nonstick coatings in pans and stuff. Hmm. So the, the researchers were originally looking for a, for a gas, for a refrigerant for, to replace the current refrigerant in refrigerators. <laughs> um, and the guy had a bunch of samples, and this one sample he had, the gas was just condensed on this dish. And he was like, and you know, if you were, if you had your mind loaded with expectations, you might just take that dish and be like, oh, well, this is a lousy refrigerant. It's not in a gas form. I'm just going to throw it out and never think of it again. But the guy actually like took the time to characterize this mistake and found out that this thing was a super hydrophobic coating and could be useful for other applications. So it's important that while you might you might have an expectation in your mind to make sure that your brain's flexible and looking for other possible directions you can take it in. And I think that's a good example. And there's lots of other good examples through through the history of science where where things like like I think the microwave too got discovered completely by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you know somebody somebody had that ability to do this lateral jump and do a different thing than they were originally set out to do. Well, and, and the famous Albert Hoffman chemistry discovery of LSD. Oh, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a good example, too. And, I mean, your your opinion may vary on whether that was a mistake or not, but it wasn't the intent. So, it's interesting. The last episode we were talking about in a improvised solo, you might be starting... You might be trying to go from point A to B, but you miss B entirely and go to D. So, kind of accepting that our mistakes are part of the process and that they're not not only are they not mistakes they're critical elements to our personal and professional or creative growth Mm -hmm. so yeah (laughs) yeah rock and roll (laughs) nice so nick you have a really cool job Mm -hmm. where you get to use 
chemistry to actually uh, work with science in a way that ultimately affects anyone who uses computer chips. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so so I'm a process engineer for Intel, the, the chip maker. And basically, if you're if you're familiar at all with computer chips, you know there's this thing called Moore's law, where we're trying to we're trying to shrink the the computer chips we make every so often and get them smaller and smaller and smaller. And this has the obvious advantage of uh, fitting a bigger chip in a smaller thing. So smartphones would have been impossible 20 years ago, obviously, but now everybody has one. And then also your chips start to use less power as they get smaller and smaller. Mm. So you get more energy efficient as well as you get smaller. So there's been this drive to make smaller and smaller computer chips, which is, which is very much ongoing. So my job is to use new chemicals and new processes to successfully make chips smaller. And this gets more and more difficult every time you try to shrink them. There's a bunch of fundamental limits that you know, supposedly exists depending who you talk to. And as a company, we've had to develop creative scientific solutions to kind of bend the rules a little bit or or do things differently in not the conventional way so we can get around those limits. The products that you're working on, how do we run across them in our lives? Are they in my MacBook Pro? Which I believe has an Intel chip in it. Yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of desktops and laptops will use Intel chips. The way you probably use it the most, without even realizing you're using it, is uh, whenever you use data on your phone, for example. Like, like big companies will just fill their server farms with Intel chips, hmm. and that's actually one of our biggest markets. So, so even is the though, cloud, anything right. in the cloud. Yeah, the cloud. So. Even though even though the the chip in your phone is not an Intel chip, it's like interfacing and talking to these chips in the cloud that are all Intel chips. So that's like a big that's like a big market. So so pretty much we're actually every day using using elements of what you're working on. Yeah, it's especially with everything becoming more digital these days, it's it's pretty intertwined with with a lot of the the activities we we do every day. Wow. Pretty cool. 50 years ago, a computer would take up a whole room, and now the smartphone in our pocket is more powerful. Yeah, it has hundreds of times more power. Like <laughs> thousands, of, way more power. Cool. So the physical materials that you're working with have established scientific properties to them. Right. And they say that you can't do it. They say that you can't make it smaller. They sound a lot like thought piranhas. Right. So I I alluded to this earlier where you can kind of, there's a danger of trying to brute force your way through Mm. a problem when that's not the the correct solution. And I think the the history of chip manufacturing has, has hit a lot of these, a lot of these moments where the conventional approach didn't work. So we had to kind of change change the architecture or change the material or change something to make it work in a different way than it was before, but has the same end goal huh. of being a functioning chip. You're talking about changing chemical properties of, of the materials that you're building with? Yeah, so that's that is one thing that we've changed. At a certain size, one material might work, but then when you try to shrink it by 50%, it's properties will not allow it to function the way you need it to. So you need a different material with better properties instead. Mm. But then you can't just swap them. When you change the material, there's all these different kind of collateral things that you have to tweak to make it work. (laughs) So no change that you make is easy. And every change takes tons and tons of experiments to make sure that you fully understand all the, the impacts of it. My dad, Dave Reiner, who is both a musician as well as a computer scientist he wants to know is there a limit to how small we can make these computer chips oh so i mean the simple answer is is yes there definitely is but there's still more tricks that that exist so there there are physical limits to how small you can make a transistor but that's only based on our current understanding of a transistor. Um, hmm. <laughs> so, so you're kind of swimming through the river of suck of science, right? Yeah, that's. I think that's a good. I think that's a good analogy in this case. 
let's put it in perspective. A lot of people try things one time, fail, and quit. Mm -hmm. You guys do not. How many failures are we talking? Like thousands, thousands millions? Of, thousands of failures. So many, so many things get tried that don't work, or we think they're working, and then we have to backtrack and so many failures countless <laughs> countless failures so like endless rivers mm -hmm. of just it's like you dove in head first into the river and hit your head on a rock and that was it and you had to start again from scratch yep. back at the comfort cave yep <laughs> and then i mean so so the the company has its river which is trying to trying to make this new smaller chip work mm -hmm. and then each person who owns this tiny piece of that has their own small river to like, you know, work towards that goal. Can you talk about how working as a team can help using the creativity of more than one person? Yeah, it's it's totally necessary because everybody's everybody's mind works a little differently. And you know, you would think in the sciences there's, you know, there's cold hard facts, there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things like people are just kind of like one person can do it as well as the next person. But in practice, having more sets of eyes, more brains working on a problem with different perspectives is, is always helpful. And the more different, the better sometimes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so absolute, absolutely critical in science. And I think in music too. Like, again, nothing, nothing exists in a vacuum. In terms of failure, do you find that working with other people can be part of the solution to when when you're running into those brick walls. Failure here is still good because if you're learning things that don't work, you know that they don't work so you don't have to try them again. Mm. And then maybe in five years from now we'll run into a similar problem and we can be like, oh no, we already did that and it didn't work. So every every failure is valuable learning experience and and we definitely take that very seriously failure is not the end right so so i guess i'm curious how it is not the end and like what's the other side that's not the end every small failure gives you some feedback like you probably fail in a slightly different way each time you can slowly learn what works and what doesn't mm -hmm. and that'll eventually get you further each time and closer to your goal you were saying you could come back to that failure. Oh, it, this didn't work that time, but now we need that information. So was that experiment a failure? No. It told you something that you would need to know Right. So, we, so in the scientific community, we call that a negative result, um, not a failure, which I, which I like as the term better because it doesn't put that kind of negative connotation with it. It's like, oh, we learned something. It just wasn't, you know, the magical, awesome thing that we wanted this time. Ah. But we're getting incrementally closer to it because we're finding out what doesn't work. Yeah. So what doesn't work is the opposite side of what does work, which means mistakes are not failures, are not the end. Cool. Negative result. <laughs> Negative result. <laughs> I tried to practice my G Lydian flat 7 scale, and I played a note out of tune. A negative result. I need to work more. <laughs> Join the River of Suck swim team to gain instant access to bonus content for just $1 a month. For episode 2, this includes extended interviews about how art and science are related, cooking strategies, science's PR problem, MP3s of all the music you've been hearing, and my blues song, Earn Your Turns, which you'll hear later in this episode. Joining the swim team at www.riverofsuck.com also gives you the opportunity to interact, leave comments, ask questions of future guests, and truly help support the creation of this podcast. Could you redefine impossible? Impossible should always have like a little asterisk next to it, which is like impossible... It's impossible based on my current understanding of the way things work and the way things are. <laughs> yeah. And you always need to be you always need to be flexible to the to the possibility that you might just be wrong. You might have the wrong model in your head and need to need to update it. Mm. So I think I think impossible gets used too casually. Like you should say it's really freaking hard. And that <laughs> might be true, but it's not quite impossible. Okay. 
I like that. That makes that makes a lot more things seem possible. Right. <laughs> if, if, if impossible is not impossible, then so much more can can be done. It's just very challenging. Yeah. <laughs> so th- is that that I believe is where that hard work comes in, where we're talking about practicing or things about your personal development, things things that take time. Yeah. I think of emotions as things that we have that are important and we need to be conscious of them all the time. Mm-hmm. But sometimes in the case of of negative thoughts, thought piranhas, negative Ralphs, we need to come up with ways to deal with the emotions that we have. What strategies do you have when you're feeling low and things seem impossible, but you know, because you have a job Mm -hmm. that requires you to think creatively in the face of impossible tasks. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you keep at it when you're stuck under a rock in that river? (laughs) Right, right, right. I think what I always come back to is like, first off, being introspective, trying to just pause acknowledge what you're feeling and try to like understand it that's kind of the first step mm-hmm. once i once i understand what the emotion is trying to do i can not ignore it but i can kind of get on with my life i can be like okay i'm feeling this way because of this i'm gonna try to do this i'm doing what the emotions telling me to do as best i can <laughs> without letting it without letting it you know overwhelm me and uh and consume me so does music ever help you think through complicated questions and ideas? Oh, absolutely. It can also be distracting. You need the right music for the t- right time. I feel like there's thinking music and then there's trying to not think music. Huh. <laughs> right. Conscious thought and unconscious thought. Right. So can you give me some examples of some artists or albums you've been into lately? Yeah, so... I've I've been listening to this band King Buffalo. They're like a, a stoner rock kind of band, but just like really mellow, groovy like riffs. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's uh, that's kind of what my brain likes to hear. So for me, that's really good like thinking, relaxing music. I'll like put put that on at work sometimes. And yeah, living in Portland, we have like a very very active doom metal scene. So I've okay. been listening to this band Yob a lot. How again, do you spell that? Y O B. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and like again, just very, very slow. Like, still, still kind of metal, but you know, slow, doomy. Good, good thinking music for me. So that's what I like to listen to when I'm, when I'm thinking about a, a solution to this problem that I'm dealing with our with our process. Do, do you feel like being outside, being in, playing in the snow, does that help? Help your brain kind of recover from the intense, oh, absolutely. intense yeah. other thought you have to... So, okay. Absolutely, yeah. So, how does that work? I mean, like, uh, skiing for me just, it lights up a totally different part of the brain from, from like, pretty much pretty much everything else I do. Definitely everything I do at work. There's kind of the, the logical, scientific side, and then skiing... Skiing like lets loose like the crazy monkey side where like ah. you know I just want I just want like this adrenaline and I just want to be outside and play in the snow and like throw things around and um j- just being like just being like more of a wild animal and less of a less of a human. <laughs> <laughs> so people talk about work life balance, mm-hmm. right? It's something everyone's striving for and yeah. no one seems to have. Yep, yep. <laughs> It's 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 an elusive thing. So one of the reasons that you became the second episode of River of Suck is you came to Colorado because your your brother just became a ski patroller at Loveland Ski Area, mm-hmm. and I'm here and we've been friends for 18 years and yep. we love skiing together. <laughs> yep, yep. So it's really great to have you here, and I I didn't want to miss the opportunity to have you in my living room with my microphone set up so we could talk about these questions. So so like somehow you've you've made time, you've carved out time in your life. To, to do things that help you, like, stay sane. Yep. I mean, how would you, you know, if you were not doing this right now, how would you be in a dark place? Oh, hell yes. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I absolutely need it. And um, I think I think the simple answer to how to how to get work-life balance is you just need to be pushing. You, you just need to, you need to prioritize it. Um, mm-hmm. 
I know, I know at Intel, it's, it's, Intel's a great place to work, but it also expects a lot of its, of its engineers. And nobody will ever tell you that you're working too hard and you should take a break. <laughs> like, you, you need to be the one to, like, look after yourself and be like, oh, hey, crap, I need a break. Like, I am completely burnt out. I need uh-huh. to go skiing. So, I think, I think that's a big part of it, is you just, you need to recognize when you need, when you need that break and and hopefully your your work is flexible enough to give you it i mean i feel i feel lucky that i at least get weekends and that i can take a week off here and a week off there i mean that's that's enough for me i would like more like i would like i would like to have like twice as much vacation that would be great (laughs) but um i'm i'm content with how much i have and i think it it helps me uh helps me stay recharged and and keep working um If you're willing to, I'd love to talk about this kind of ski accident. That, oh yeah, that we were let's both. Please, let's talk about that. that. that we that's were a good, both a part good of because. So okay, so we've been skiing for 18 years. We figured out because the first time we ever hung out was skiing. Yep. So that yep. means that our entire time we've been friends, we've been skiing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it started out riding chairlifts, right? We would go do as many laps as we could. We were in Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. Just trying, we just kind of got into a lot of trouble, and you know, I think I think some some sticky situations that we were able to learn from, mm-hmm, definitely. And but but as time progressed, and we spent a year as roommates actually in Salt Lake City, we were. I was trying to get ski bumming out of my system so I could focus <laughs> on music and yeah. work. And How did it, that go, Andy? Oh, well, here I am a decade <laughs> later. I've been in Colorado for five years, so yep. I did move back home originally, but here I am in the about an hour away from Winter Wonderland, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, which is actually part of why you live in Portland, right? Is You're yep. about an hour from the mountains, yep. too. Easy access to skiing. Still kind of a ski bum. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, we can't escape it. So, But at some point, we also realized that leaving the ski area... And doing what, what we call backcountry skiing, there are no more lifts. You're responsible for your own safety and rescue, and you're earning your turns. Earning your turns, exactly. So tell tell us about our trip in okay. uh, last May. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it was first off, it was an awesome trip, despite having a, a not awesome ending, which I'll which I'll get to in a second. So Andy Andy came out to to Portland for a week, and our plan was to ski as many of the the giant volcanoes around Portland and Washington as we could. So I had you know we, we had a short list of the ones we wanted to do. We started off, we skied Mount St Helens. It was amazing, super yeah. cool. We got to look over the edge into the like smoking, pulsing lava dome. Yeah. Um, and look over the whole surrounding wilderness that St. Helens destroyed. <laughs> it's always super cool being up there. Yeah. So super fun, super positive experience. And then we skied Mount Adams two days later. Even bigger, even bigger run, even bigger payoff, better skiing, better conditions. Like we were even more stoked, like crazy, having a good time. And then for our third and final volcano of the trip, we did uh, decided to do South Sister down in Bend. Um, and... My two buddies, Kyle and Dylan, also joined us. Um, We were all, like, super excited. It was a beautiful day. We, you know, we got up early, slept at the trailhead, like, got up really (laughs) early, got to the top of the mountain around noon. We were having, like, the time of our lives. Everything was super amazingly awesome. And then we all skied the top pitch of South Sister, which was, like, perfect, amazing corn snow. And for those of you who don't know much about skiing or about snow... It's that snow that kind of uh, melts and refreezes and gives you little granular corn bits. And it's almost as fun to ski on as, as powder. It's just totally. great. Easy, easy, fun snow. Yeah. So we get about halfway down, or less than halfway down, I guess. We get done with the first pitch. <laughs> um, we stop and, like, regroup. And... I'm just feeling so amazing. We just we just ripped down this pitch. I skied it like super fast and made giant turns. You, you and it skied was really it like fun. Superman. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just feeling uh, so confident and so stoked and so good. And I had my best buddies here. <laughs> so then the first thing we the first thing I do after we're stopped is like, oh, I'm gonna launch off this little wind lip and like land into the the slope below. It's something I've done like a hundred times. 
Um, it's totally safe. There's there's nothing nothing can go wrong. Blah 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 blah. <laughs> famous <laughs> famous last words I know. <laughs> so I jump off it and I land, and instead of being the perfect corn snow that I was used to from the pitch above us, this pitch was getting a bunch of sun because it was like lower and pointed a different way. Mm-hmm. So I landed in about a foot of like slushy, crappy snow. One of my skis ejected. The other ski didn't eject and just dug into the snow. And my ski didn't release. And I twisted around my ski and I spiral fractured my tibia and fibula on the left side. Or on the right side, sorry. So as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, f- this is going to be a very, very long day. <laughs> uh, which it was. <laughs> um, I kind of... I kind of came to, I, I, I kind of tumbled down the hill a bunch of times, and then, you know, when I got up, I saw that my foot was pointed backwards at a weird angle, so uh, it was completely obvious from what I was seeing and what I was feeling that it was totally broken. <laughs> I was above you, I watched you tumble, I said some other words that I can't say in the podcast, mm-hmm. and I... I think I might have yelled immediately, are you okay? And you said no. Yeah. So I carefully <laughs> ski down to you. And then we had to call for a rescue because, of course, we're not in a ski resort because we're doing, we're doing backcountry skiing. Yeah. So we had to wait for about three hours for a helicopter to come, drop rescue off, and then for them to sled me down the mountain and yeah. pick me back up. So there was a long period of being... Having knowing my legs broken and just being sitting on the side of a mountain and, and just waiting, which was which was pretty crazy. Um, yeah. So I'm the one who made that 911 call, and I was grateful to have service in that moment because mm-hmm. my best friend is on a mountain. Actually, at the time we didn't know you were bleeding, but we found out later you were bleeding a lot, <laughs> and uh, it was over an hour before we even knew that a helicopter would be coming. I knew that whatever I said over the phone would greatly affect the outcome mm-hmm. of the the level of rescue. Everything I said was geared towards, please, please, please send us a heli so my friend <laughs> Nick does not die. Because that was, at the time, that was, you dying was not off the table yet. No. Right? Well, as your friend, I'm ridiculously happy <laughs> with the outcome of your rescue and your recovery because here you are eight months later and you've actually been out on the mountain skiing. Yeah. So did that take, did that just happen instantly? No. Was it, was <laughs> it, it, was it easy? It a ton of work. It, it wasn't easy, but it all, the human body is amazing. And if you... If you give it the right amount of rest and then the right amount of doing the right exercises after that, you can recover from like extremely catastrophic injuries. And this and this was no exception. Um, so I was on I was on crutches and in like a, a boot for about six weeks and just not putting weight on it. And then you know transitioned to putting weight on it, walking on it, walking a little further on it, biking on it. <laughs> and then mountain biking on it and then running on it and hiking on it and you know just adding adding slightly more impact slightly more complexity um and all the while trying to do like various you know strengthening exercises um to like to build the muscle back up um it's a long process it takes a lot of work um there's no days off you're you're just constantly trying to do whatever exercises you can to strengthen it whenever you can but if you do that, it'll it just happens. Your body is amazing. Like it can it can rebuild itself after pretty much anything. I mean, if that's not the river of suck, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely incremental is the word I would I would describe the recovery as. Mm-hmm. I have to say, if Nick hadn't broken his leg on South Sister. The most memorable part of the trip may have been the 10-mile, 7,500 vertical feet hike to and ski from the summit of Mount Adams in Washington State. I was struggling mentally and physically all the way up. I just wasn't getting into the groove I wanted to be in. I began writing in 12-bar blues about my uphill struggle, and every time I stopped to write another lyric, my pace quickened and my attitude improved. 
a colossal slog up an impossibly faraway goal became a life-changing success. I performed this song at Montana Fiddle Camp over the summer with guitarist Mike Dowling. About sunrise, break a trail through the trees. Mountains far and mountains high, but we got It's a work in progress. Still <laughs> trying to become even more Nick Nickish every day, but <laughs> <laughs> I would like to thank you, Nick, for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. It's been been fun to talk to you about all this all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. You came how many miles to be here? Uh a thousand ish? <laughs> I don't know exactly. A lot. Well, you don't live in Colorado. You live in Portland, Oregon. And I sure appreciate you being here in Lafayette, Colorado, in Boulder County. (laughs) And uh, spending some time not just skiing, but actually talking about life. I would like to think that we've made the case today that by swimming through the river of suck, no matter what we're trying to accomplish, whether it's our musical goals, our life goals, personal goals, personal goals our cooking curry goals our skiing Skiing. goals (laughs) definitely skiing goals 
you know, we can use these. I think, I think as artists, we have a lot to learn from scientists and we ignore them and their lessons at our own peril. So, so I really appreciate the insight to, into your, your, uh, chip making world. Yeah. Been happy to, happy to talk about it. <laughs> cool. No one ever said crossing the river of suck would be easy or comfortable. So I want to thank you for tuning in and giving it a chance. The music in this episode was composed and performed by me, Andy Reiner, on a Yamaha electric violin and a Kodobo carbon fiber bow. For episode number three, I am super excited to bring in Natalie Padilla. She is one of my absolute favorite fiddle players in the world, who just so happens to live right here on the Front Range in Colorado. I'll be back with a new episode every month, forever, so make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. Visit riverofsuck.com for all the latest updates on future episodes and guests. Become a member of the River of Suck swim team to support this podcast and access exclusive content, extended interviews, and high-quality downloads of music recorded for this podcast. My name is Andy Reiner. Till next time, keep swimming! <laughs>